Lord, this morning we desire to focus on you and your word and what you revealed, and we ask for understanding in a difficult passage. We desire to know what you have revealed, that we may be accurate in communicating it and obeying it. So we desire that your spirit work amongst us to give us illumination, and we may leave here not only understanding more, but motivated to serve you at a higher level. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't have to cancel today. Linda showed up. There's a lot of passage in uh, Scripture that sometimes are not easy to understand, and it kind of reminds us of Isaiah, where it tells us that God's ways are not our ways. His understanding's different from our understanding. We see things from a limited and oftentimes a distorted perspective, and it's only the Word of God, as God has revealed it, that gives us a picture of reality, even though sometimes it's not easy to understand or sometimes not easy to accept. Romans chapter 5, particularly the last part of it, I think is one of those passages, so we're going to continue looking at it. We didn't even get out of verse 12, because I think there's a lot of things in there that need Clarity, so we spent some time, so we'll pick up after I give you a review of it so that you kind of pick up where we left off. So in the city of Rome, we have believers that were not much different than us, and I think Paul actually goes into a lot of detail here to explain verse 12. I think I gave you a little insight into what he's doing in terms of the structure. I'll review that with you. So... Christians throughout the ages, in fact, Old Testament believers as well, are not always in tune with what God has revealed. So Paul saw a need to expand on verse 12 before he went on to tell us what he was going to teach. So let's take a look at it. We're in the section dealing with justification. In fact, I see that section somewhat ending in 521, but he's already pretty much dealt with the doctrine itself by the end of chapter 4. So I see chapter 5 as more of a transition. Transition to the next section we will describe as sanctification. So we have three theological terms. We need to understand condemnation and everything associated with it, showing the need of mankind for justification which is a work of God, nothing that man can accomplish. But that's the beginning. Chapter 5 tells us that's the beginning of a whole area of grace, the whole Christian life. In fact, in some senses, you might even think that after we are saved, why do we have to hang around? Well, we are declared righteous such that we can have a relationship, but we are not made righteous And God wants to continue with a sanctifying process, separating us from sin, making us more righteous. So we're here to be sanctified, but also to be part of the process is to be utilized by him as well. So that gives you kind of a survey of the first major provision, the book of Romans, provision of God's righteousness. And I'm not going to go into detail, but real quickly... And I see a transition from justification to sanctification. 
justification running to the end of chapter 5, but before we get to chapter 6, we have chapter 5, we're transitioning from the profit that we gain from justification, remember verse 1 of chapter 5, having been justified, now all these other things are true now for those that have received justification. You might have noticed that he addresses them a little differently. He uses the we in the early verses there. We that have experienced this. And this is to motivate them to the next stage. And then he stops at verse 12, and he needs to explain in more detail these two antagonistic areas in the area of sanctification. Even though we've been declared righteous... There's still the possibility of the reign of sin and death. So he has to kind of explain where it comes from and describe it in a little bit more detail because that's the major barrier, not only in coming into a relationship with God before we receive justification, but it'll be the major barrier as well in chapter 6, 7, and 8 in the process of sanctification. So the first few verses there kind of remind us of condemnation and the source of it. And then he goes to transition into this area of another reign or another possibility of being able to be ruled by grace. And that's the last part of the paragraph there. And that's the basis for this righteous life. In other words, living in righteousness or the process of sanctification. There's ups and downs in it, but the ultimate goal is glorification, which is also described in chapter 8. So it's somewhat of a, at least I see it as a transition to a major subdivision of the book of Romans. So let's take a look at this powerful reign that comes out of justification. There's actually two reigns before we get into the reign of grace. And we have the reign of death through one. And he introduces us to a concept that is not that hard to understand, but it's difficult because I think it's kind of goes contrary to sometimes the way we think. So he goes into some detail there. This reign of death is devastating. And we've seen that from the condemnation section chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 3. So he's going to go back to that and talk about the origin of it. And he's going to talk about the entrance of sin and death in that passage. And we talked about the therefore, transitioning from what he's talked about, and I think it includes the whole section on justification. Therefore, this follows not only from verses 1 through 11, but everything that he talked about from chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 4. So therefore, it's not the normal therefore, it's actually could be translated because of this, literally through this, dia tuto. Dia is the preposition through, and this, kind of a Greek way of saying, because of certain things, this is true. So he's going to introduce us to things that, that follow from what he said or in relationship, not a conclusion, not a therefore in the sense of now we can conclude this. It's more, I'm going to pick up some more of it 
And because of this, I'm going to expand upon it. So that's the idea. So it's a summation of all that has gone before. And I see it as that transition to the whole area of living the Christian life after you become born again, is the way that John puts it in John's Gospel. So just as, when you have a just as, then you expect something to follow that Comparison, you might say that he's opening up just as this is true. Now we expect this to be true. So what he's reminding us is certain things through one man's sin entered into the world. We don't have a problem with that. We enter into a little bit of confusion when we get to the end of the verse. And death through sin, that's not a problem because we understand that the wages of sin is death. And by the way, I didn't point out, but death in the English doesn't have the article, but it has an article in the Greek indicating that he's referring to a particular death, the death. That's why we went to the book of Genesis to see what he's talking about dealing with that one man. He's talking about the death that was introduced as a result of that first sin. The hard part of the verse is, and so death spread to all men, It's still not quite difficult, but what does he mean by because all sin? And that's one of the things that we'll need to kind of review a little bit. The second death in this verse also means death. Yep, it's also with the article. Same death. So that, so the death spread to all men. That same death spread to all men. And he kind of adds a little phrase that it's a little vague, not so clear. And on your outline sheet, you see there's four different views as to how they take that little phrase along with everything else it says in verse 12. But the main thing to notice before we get into that, just as you would expect in verse 13, this following, so just as this, now that, but we don't have the following of that. In fact, we have the dash there, and he's going to take a diversion. We don't get to that until we get to verse 18, so then, just as this is true, so then this follows, you might say. But it doesn't appear to verse 18, so yes, some verses in between we need to talk about. And I think, like, oftentimes, sometimes we come up with an idea, and Paul writes it, actually, and then we think, well, I better expand upon this before I go on to finish that idea. And that's kind of what he's doing here. And it's deliberate because he's writing it down. But he leaves kind of the sentence somewhat incomplete until he gets to verse 18. This is in Greek called an anakaluthon, if you want the technical description of it. But you don't think about it, but we do that all the time. You might start a sentence, and in the middle you have another idea, and you interject that, and you explain that, and then you say, oh, by the way, I need to go back to what I started with. So it's pretty common in everyday speech. And not so common in writing, but it's relatively common in the New Testament, actually. Especially with Paul, because he seems to have a hundred things on his mind, and he puts them all together in one sentence. So then in verse 18, then he kind of picks up where he left off in 12. So through one transgression, the result of condemnation to all men. Even so, now this kind of is what follows. See the structure there? So it's a little complicated, but 
the New Testament believers, obviously, he's writing to believers, not to the unbeliever, even though he's describing the condition of the unbeliever. They would have picked up where Paul left off. We're a little bit removed from them, so we don't pick it up as easily. I introduced the whole passage last time, so let me review that. The therefore that ties it back. This is a continuation of what he's talking about in not only 1 through 11, but I think the whole discussion on justification. And he says, just as something is true, and he's going to talk about the reign of death through one man's sin. That's verse 12. Then he's going to expand that. The reign of death skips down to verse 18. So then, and then picks up, even so, there's this reign of grace from another man, one man also. And he's going to do the, this parallel. I gave you a lot of that last time. Kind of the results of that one man to transition to how do you now live the Christian life now that you have received this born-again experience. And there's a possibility of two ways of living it. So now, for, this is kind of expanding, uh, 13 and 14, he's going to explain further. And that's where we're going to move today. We're going to go into that explanation. And then he has a but, 15 through 17, he's going to contrast this reign of death with the reign of grace. And then he's going to pick up his thought. So it's a little complicated, but hopefully this chart will help you follow kind of the thinking of Paul. And to us, sometimes it's not so easy. And then he's going to expand for this reign of death. He's going to expand upon it. So we have some expansion of the reign of grace from the one man's righteousness. And then he's going to transition with the with the contrast, 20 and 21, talking about a new way of living that is not automatic, takes trust in Christ just like that first experience of trusting him for justification. In fact, lots of things in our experience can take us back to that old way of living. So it's a transition to the next section in chapter 6. Back to verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, and we started the contrast and comparison. There's lots of them. There's two men, two acts, two results, two sets of the many, two federal heads. We'll talk about that some more today. Two reigns, two eternal effects, lots of contrasts. He starts it with one man, and then he's going to pick up one other man. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's described as the second Adam, because he begins sinless, Adam does, and falls. The second Adam begins sinless and is faithful, never falls. And because of his work, we have two acts that result in two effects. We also have contrast. We have condemnation with justification. We've talked a lot about that, but he's going to bring it up again. And he's going to talk about disobedience of the one. And it would include us as well. Slash obedience of that one. So he's contrasting the first Adam with the second Adam. One sinful act plunged humanity into the condition we find ourselves today. And one act of righteousness is the only escape, the only way out. 
And now the transition from living. That's why he talks about a reign. In other words, it's like a what governs your life. What rules you? Does the old nature rule you or now that you have a new nature? Are you allowing that new nature through the power of the Holy Spirit rule you? So it's a reign. And he's using that analogy or that metaphor of like a king reigning over a kingdom. And does your old nature dominate you and rule you? Or now does the Holy Spirit dominate and rule you? So there's a reign of death as opposed to the reign of grace. So lots of contrast in the passage. Sin entered into the world. We define sin is missing the mark. In other words, we fall short of the glory of God. And some summary ideas that we covered last time. Sin entered the world through Adam. I think that's clear. It's easy to see. And death through sin. Humanity plunged into a new realm of death. And we talked about the various aspects of death. This is the death. This is the death. That's why we went back to Genesis 3. The death involves not only the intellect, where Adam and Eve died intellectually, and Paul describes humanity as darkened in their thinking. We don't see spiritual things. In fact, we don't see them until we come into a saving relationship. Then a whole world is opened up. And Paul encourages us to renew our minds in Ephesians 4, and you can only do that by what he has revealed. It's important to know his word and study it, to renew your mind, otherwise your mind is preoccupied with that old way of thinking. Okay? It involves death also. This death, the death, involves a moral aspect. For the first time, they experience shame. Obviously, we're experience that all the time, so that's part of that experience of the old nature. It's certainly spiritual, in fact, that's the dominating idea, and spiritual death is separation from God, where you don't have that intimate, close relationship with him, separation. And we went through the verses, I'm not going to go through them again, but these are Genesis verses, beginning in verse 7, but also verse 8. And we have in 8, the shame, and 8 and 9, we have the separation. It's emotional. For the first time, they have fear. They have emotional damage or emotional death. Verse 10, verses 11 through 12, we have relationships are affected. Adam and Eve's relationship now is broken as well. The man blames the woman. The woman can only blame the serpent. So... We put it off on others. It's not my fault. In fact, ultimately, we blame God. Why did you put me in this situation? And their purpose, also, they died in terms of the task that God gave them. It's damaged, 17 and 18. They have to deal with a cursed creation. And then it actually includes the physical. Now, the death is not... It's not immediate, you might say, in terms of ceasing of breathing or the stopping of your heart from beating. That's just the end, ultimate result. But I also said that uh, the physical involves now the experience of pain and actually the death of individual cells. If you look at it microscopically, Adam and Eve started to die the day that they ate, just as God promised. In fact, the nanosecond that they ate of the fruit. 
They began the process of degeneration, aging. That's when the cells die. And less and less of them are replaced. And those that are replaced are not as viable as the ones that they're replacing. And as I look out, I can see that very clearly. Wow. That pains me. <laughs> that kills me. <laughs> so, so it includes the, the physical aspect. So the death, the death that Adam and Eve experience is the death that we experience. That's the whole point here. So it's not just the ceasing of our heart. It's not just the ceasing of breathing. It includes our whole person. In fact, when we were talking about condemnation, we brought out the idea, this is what total depravity means, this death. In other words, it, we are depraved in every aspect of our being. It doesn't mean that you are as bad as you can possibly be. It has the idea that every aspect of our being is affected. Sanctification is going to be that process where God begins to restore those areas. Chapters 6, 7, and 8. To bring us from death in this experience where our minds are renewed, we begin to live a life of integrity such that we don't have to experience shame, where we are joined and have fellowship with Jesus Christ, And that fellowship, when broken, can be restored. God has given us a means of doing that. Emotionally, we begin to understand how to better control, particularly the negative aspects, or at least the effects of it. And it repairs relationships. We have peace with God, with one another as well. And our purpose is renewed in that now we have a renewed purpose, still working in a fallen world, but now we have a new vision. We're not self-centered. In other words, everything we do is not just for us. It's for other people, and we have an outward perspective. And we await, can't reverse those dying cells, we await that resurrection where we will be removed from these sinful dying bodies. Okay? So another summary idea, the consequences of sin is death. And now this is where we left off. Long introduction because this is a complicated passage. need to review it again. So let's look at the last part of verse 12. So death spread to all men. Introduced by Adam, that same death, as Connie pointed out, that death that Adam experienced now all of his descendants will experience it. So death spread to all men. And what is this little phrase? Because all sinned, it's not immediately clear. And that's why theologians over time in history have come up with four ways of trying to explain what is meant there. One of them, when it says because all sinned, one of them has the idea, in fact, Big debate that went on, oh, when was this? Three, four hundred A.D., somewhere in that time frame. Pelagius was a theologian, and eventually his theology was rejected by the broader church. 
and he was actually branded as a heretic, but he came up with the idea that each individual is born basically without sin, in innocence, almost denying verse 12. And he took the phrase, because all sinned, in other words, death didn't come to them until they sinned personally, so that we were all innocent. In fact, this is a common viewpoint even today, by the way, that Adam's sin did not affect us, which is contrary to verse 12 and the rest of what he's going to talk about. But it camps on that because all sin and says, well, that's when these effects came into play. So does it mean that? That's the Pelagian well, viewpoint. What is the sin that one? Your personal sin. What Wh- whatever it? it is. It's not like being self-centered. Being bad to your husband, for example. <laughs> That's not the original sin. No, <laughs> we're not talking about original sin. We're talking about Pelagian. In other words, right, but what is the Cain's sin? sin would have been killing his brother. And probably something oh, no, before that. Specifically, not, not taking over your own life like Adam Right. Not thinking. We'll expand on that. Yeah. Versus but that's the sin he meant was like against the Ten Commandments? Yeah, whatever. Whatever sin that individual, and all are inclined in different ways. Well, Pelagian tried to make the case that Adam's descendants were condemned and died as a result of their personal, their own sin. They, they're kind of innocent of that original sin that we're talking about. Which twists verse 12, actually. Okay, so that That's why it was branded as non-biblical. Your personal sin condemned you and yeah, you died. differentiate what those things are. What I'm differentiating is Adam's sin, as it says there, sin entered through him and it spread to all men, as the verse tells us. That's, that's, that's the original, original sin, which is... Yes, Pelagius is denying original sin. There's different names, but one of the names that the theologians use is mediate imputation, in that we sin because of our corrupt nature that we inherit. We we inherit a corrupt, corrupted nature, and from that we sin. So it's a little bit like Pelagius, but not quite as drastically apart from... So we're still good people when we're born. We're not, because we're born corrupted. So this view says... Corrupted, yeah. And it's on the basis of that corruption that we sin. That's the difference. Even the sins you're born, you get Pelagian's kind of. Yeah, Pelagian, right. That's the difference. Yeah, exactly. Now, the last two, I think both of these have some truth to both of them. You might even combine them. There was another view called realistic. You might also have that described as seminal. In other words, directly by genetics, you might say. That's what's real, a real union with Adam. In other words, we have a real union with Adam. Pelagius says we don't have a union with Adam. There's a mediating position between we have a union with Adam that corrupts us, but we are responsible for our own sin, basically. and We sin from that corrupt nature. Now, that's true, too, but there's more to what Paul is saying. So this idea is, and I think the truth of it is genetically, in other words, biologically and physically, we do inherit, just like if your parents had brown eyes and you have brown eyes, you inherited that from your parents. 
either one of them or both of them. So also we have inherited not only the sin nature, but we are guilty also of Adam's sin. That's this idea of original sin. The confusion here and the difficulty here is it almost seems like, well, why should I be held responsible for somebody else's sin? But it has to do with what God designed in Adam and Eve and the first man. And his nature is passed on, just like biologically his nature is passed on, so also morally and spiritually that nature is passed on. And not only that, but in a reality, it has affected all of humanity and all humanity dies. He's going to expand that in verses 13, so we'll get further into it. Okay? I understand that in regards to originals. Yes. There are passages in Scripture as the sins of fathers and the sins of the sons. Mm-hmm. In some passages it says they're passed down. In other passages it says you're not responsible. Not responsible. So, so that, those passages then therefore talking about personal sin. Yes. To original sin. Yes. Exactly. Okay, Very good. Did everybody get that? Yeah. The original sin is trying to invent your own life. Disobeying God, mm. taking over the throne, having no, that's personal. That's personal. What's original? Adam's Adam, no, Adam's Adam sin. Did that? He took over. In the words, took we are life. guilty of Adam's sin. Which and in fact, a, a biblical basis for this one is that Hebrews passage. What is the Hebrews nine through seven, nine through ten? We won't look that up, but. The writer of Hebrews talking about, remember the giving of tithes? And he talks about Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek. And he's making the tie and he's saying later on after Abraham, remember how many generations after one of the sons of Jacob, you know, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and one of the sons is Levi. Levi gave tithes. Because he was in the loins. In other words, genetically, he was part of Abraham. If you want to use modern terminology, he was in Abraham, and it's like Levi gave those tithes. Does that make sense? He's distinguishing the two priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek and the lower priesthood of the Levites. And when Jesus died for our sins, We're going to get back, yeah. He died for all of them. So, there's another viewpoint, and I think there is this genetic aspect. There is this tie of all humanity. In other words, there's a unity amongst all of mankind. But there's also this idea, this federalist view, in that Adam is the head of all of humanity by creation. He was created that way. This is the way that God created mankind. And Federalist has that idea of something that represents something else. Like our, I used the analogy last week of our government. We have a Federalist government in that we have representative government. So I use the analogy that Heinrich voted against Kavanaugh. And even though every, probably every one of you in the room is repulsed by that. It's like you and I voted against Kavanaugh to be the next Supreme Court judge. I didn't choose. No, you didn't choose that. I didn't choose. 
So I chose Heinrich, but I even chose Adam to be my head. Well, you know, most, of, most of the rest of us didn't choose Heinrich. <laughs> but most of you didn't choose Adam. No, none of us chose Adam. That's right. So the point being, no, but the point being is this representative idea. In other words, he represented us in his vote. Adam represented all of us in terms of a relationship with God. And that relationship brought death. We are dead spiritually until we come to know him. Then we're given new life. So the Federalist view... I'm using that as just an analogy where we are represented by others and it's as if we had voted. In other words, but you get the idea though. Federalist means we have a representative that represented us. In other words, in a real sense, from God's perspective, when Adam sinned, we were not only seminally in his loins and we sinned. God views us as being there and I think also as our representative, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Does that make sense? And I think the last two are probably the best views there. There's probably a combination of both ideas in that. So we have another summary idea here. Sin is imputed. We're going to see that in the next couple of verses here. Sin is imputed to all Adam's descendants. And again, we have that sense within us. The reason it's difficult is because we say, well, how can that be fair? How can, you know, how can that jive? But remember, God's ways are different from ours. Well, Jeremy. he's very consistent because the same thing happened in Joshua 7 with the sin of Achan, whereas yeah. all of Israel was judged. I mean, it was, it, they were Corporate, sin. Corporately. It was a corporate, and this whole idea of corporate versus individual is very interesting, but it was exactly the same kind of thing here. All of Israel was had their relationship with God separated because of Achan. Because the neat part is when God does this, he provides a way to make a, make, you know, to again bring unity back to him. Yeah. And the point that he's going to eventually get to is we have this same unfairness. Is it fair that we as sinners have a relationship with a holy God? No. But because of the obedience of one other and only one, on the basis of that, we have grace. That's the point that he's going to make eventually. He's not going to get to it till we get to verse 18 or so. But sin, we have that word, and in fact it's in the text, imputed to all Adam's descendants. We need to view it, this is what Paul is saying, as if we had sinned. And in fact, had we been in Adam's shoes, we would have sinned. So now he's going to give this relationship of sin and death, because you're going to say a Jewish person at least, and probably anyone that has any idea of what Scripture teaches, would have the idea that there's this relationship. But the law didn't come in till Moses, such that men did not have specific standards. So verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. In other words, there was sin. Did Cain sin? Yeah, he killed his brother. Did uh, those descendants after Cain and Abel, yeah, they all not only sinned, but they died, and some of their sins are recorded in the book of Genesis, bigamy in terms of Lamech and other things that are specific. So until the law, sin was in the world, 
But sin is not imputed. In other words, you have to have a law before you are responsible before that law. So it can't be imputed when there is no law. So the question is, well, what's the relationship between Mosaic law? Well, the Mosaic law deals with personal violations, specific violations of God's standards. Hundreds of them. An overwhelming number of them. In fact, the purpose of the law is to reveal that we can't obey it get hung up. In fact, today, there are so many law books, even in our U.S. code, that all of us are probably in violation of one of them right now. That's just the nature of law codes. So, sin is not imputed when there is no law. So, what's the deal? He's going to answer that in the next verse. So, we have, we have creation, very good, shortly after we have the fall of Adam, but there is law. And we looked at that last week. There's the command to Adam. You can eat from all of the trees. It's almost like there's this whole forest of different varieties of trees that are bearing fruit. You can eat from every one of them. That's the sense of the verse. But there's one in the middle, one little tiny tree that you cannot partake of. In the day that you do, you shall die dead. You shall die. You shall surely die. So there's a command to Adam. The law doesn't come until much later. So we have a fall of Adam and Eve, and then we have vivid sin in Cain. We have sin accumulating amongst the culture to the extent that the culture is about to destroy itself. God brings the flood. Lots of death there. In fact, all of humanity dies except one family, physically. We have degeneration from the flood to Babel, God intervenes, doesn't record death there, but there's death in between. We have Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroys, and the other cities of the plain, God destroys them, a lot of death there, and death is recorded elsewhere as well. We have the plagues of Egypt that wipes out that generation of the Egyptian culture. So there's lots of sin and death before God brings the Mosaic law. And after the plagues of Egypt, we have the Exodus, and then we have the Sinai experience. That's what Paul is getting at here. Okay, so we have another summary idea. He's talking about sin, not personal sin, but violation of the Mosaic Law. He's saying that is not what's imputed, personal sin. So it goes back, and what he's going to say, there's a reign of death in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, which means mankind suffered the consequences of sin. The question is, what sin? It's not personal sin, because there was no violation of the clear revelation of Moses on Mount Sinai. That's why he brings up Sinai. But it's a greater sin. It's a sin in which we were in Adam. Does that make sense? We disobeyed that first command. Thou shalt not eat. We ate, we partook, at least as Adam's or Adam was our representative. But that seminal idea, I think, is also true in that we are viewed as being there. Based on that Hebrews passage, just like... Levi paid tithes being in Abraham, okay? So nevertheless, death reigned, so that means there had to be consequences. So we have sin and death reigning from the fall 
to the law. People died suffering the consequences of sin. Another summary idea. So the descendants suffered the consequences of sin. That's death. So the question is, which sin? And I think that's what he's trying to clarify here. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And he uses offense here, another word for sin. This is specific transgression of law. So, yeah, it's obedience. It's not a moral thing. So they they weren't Adam and Eve weren't immoral. They had no. Yep. So it was a pure disobedience. Yes. It wasn't like yep. there were no like thou shalt. I mean, this apple was for the things you eat. You know, it's like there was nothing wrong with eating the apple. Right. Except that God said not to. Right. That's the original sin. Yeah. Not, that is original sin. Voting for somebody. Disobedience is disobedience to God. Which is not having God at the center of your life. Mm-hmm. Just thinking, I'm the center of my life. Yep. That I think is the original. Story. Yep. Yep. Oh. And in Adam, we were there. We right. were in Adam. So over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, I think what he may be referring to, speaking of babies perhaps, or even people that are impaired and that sort of thing, even those. And then he concludes, so he uses another term here, uh, instead of hamartia, missing the mark, kind of a broad overall concept of sin. This is a more specific, a transgression or an offense, a violation of a specific law, more specific, a violation of a standard that is evident and clear. Hmm? What's the transliteration of that Paraptoma, P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A would be the translator. Paraptoma, paraptoma. Can't remember where the accent is included. So, consequences of sin that he's having in view here is not personal sin. He's talking about original sin. That is imputed to us. And that's probably the difficult area that we sometimes have putting it all together. But I think that's what he's teaching. He's not saying that we're not liable for our own sin. That's on top of Adam's sin. We are guilty simply on the basis of what Adam did because we are in Adam and at least he's our representative head. So on top of that, that makes us even more guilty. Because we sin, all sins as well. Okay? And Adam is a type of him who was to come. And I think this is at the heart of it. We have this comparison contrast between the first Adam, and he's using some something of a technical word here, type, who is a type of him who was to come. Biblically, there are several of these what are called types. There's a whole hermeneutical area, typology. I deal with that in my hermeneutics course. I don't know if we have time to develop it. Let me briefly go over it with you, and then we'll come back, and I'll start here next week. So when it uses that word type, Greek word tupas, for those of you that know Greek, Typology deals with this relationship with certain persons, like Adam, 
Sometimes they might be events or they might even be institutions. I'll give you a list of them in a moment that appear in the Old Testament. In fact, typology is a form of prophecy, predicts certain things. Certain persons, events, or institutions of the Old Testament that prefigure by God's design persons, events, or institutions in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So in this case, Adam, by God's design, prefigures a particular person in the New Testament. Now, on the next slide, I'm going to skip over it. The next slide, I'm I'm basically giving you what constitutes a, a, a type. In other words, how do you know whether you have a type in the New Testament? There's some things that you can test it and see. I'm going to rush through that and get to the next slide to give you some examples. And in the Bible, we have persons like Adam. In fact, this is one of the clearest of all of Scripture, who is a type. In fact, he's identified using that technical term. There are institutions like the Passover that is typical. The whole Passover is a type of an ultimate Passover, something in the New Testament. Jesus is, his sacrifice is our Passover. So the elements relating to the Old Testament Passover has some corresponding elements in the New Testament. There are offices, Hebrews, what is it, 10 or 7 maybe, where there's the Levitical priesthood has some typological concepts relating to another priesthood of Jesus Christ, Melchizedek. There's differences, but there's also... Things that correspond, events, perhaps 1 Corinthians 10, the wilderness experience. In fact, Paul uses a different word there. He uses the word that translated example, in other words, a typological relationship. Certain actions, burnt offerings, for example. Certain things, the tabernacle is a type. I'll pick up here next week and we'll look at it in more detail. Verse 15 through 17, we'll look at next week. We have the contrast of these two reigns. Two ways of living. Two different rulers over our lives. Either self and or the Holy Spirit. Those are the options that he'll lay out in 6 through 8. So your slide shows the reign of sin and death up to Moses. Doesn't it still reign for anyone who hasn't accepted Christ? Absolutely, yeah. Now, the point he was making is he's distinguishing by going to Moses personal sin. Yeah, yeah. Because those people, they didn't have the specific law to violate. The only thing they had to violate was that command that God gave. That was the law that God gave to to Adam. And the point he's making, it's on that basis. And we were in Adam violating that law. That's what's imputed. That's why Adam's sin is imputed to us. That makes sense? Not all God's ways are easy. This is one of those. Easy to understand, but his grace is very clear. Who wants to close for? Jeremy, you flinched. Drew, we just praise you. Um, just thank you for my relationship with this Lord. Running your word, Lord, and praying for the Spirit to, to uh, speak to us on what you have said this year. We just... Uh, again, this is sort of uh, a difficult passage to understand, Lord, but we know you were this yesterday today first. And so I just pray you work with us this week to understand this in our hearts and in our actions, Lord. And I just pray you help us to be light into the world as we go about our day and, and that you shine out. So just pray for me.
Amen.